Hello and welcome to another episode of Carton Malarkey. Today we are talking to the brilliant Tor Sky about his book, The Wolf Age, all about the battles between the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons. Enjoy! If you're ready, we can dive in, start talking about yeah. your brilliant book. Sure. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah, so we kind of start with, a, with our kind of classic Carton Malarkey question first up. Could you summarise your book in 30 seconds for our listeners? Sure. Uh, my book tells the story of a very turbulent period in the history of England and Scandinavia uh, in the decades around the first, uh, the end of the first millennium, uh, the year 1000 AD, uh, which is sometimes called the Second Viking Age. So it depicts a series of wars and conflicts and a lot of political scheming and backstabbery that eventually led to the Viking invasion and conquest of Anglo-Saxon England and the creation of the so-called North Sea Empire, which for a brief period of time uh, united England and Scandinavia under one king. Ooh. Oh, I love it. The scandals, the drama. <laughs> Sounds yeah. very juicy. Lots of drama. Lots of... Yeah, yeah, exactly. No wonder they got a TV series out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I'm, yeah, so, so I wonder if it's. Uh, I, I, in my, my impression is that it's it, it's not a very uh, famous period in, in the in, in the English imagination. No, it's, well, that's what I was then going to ask you if you wouldn't mind contextualizing a bit for the listeners who aren't familiar with this area of history. You know what was going on in the Scandinavian countries at the time, because as you said, this isn't something we. I remember touching upon this area of history in primary school so I was very very young but I haven't mm. really gone back to it since mm. so it'd be yeah if you could contextualize a bit that'd be fantastic please sure so we're at uh let's call it the very end of the of the so-called viking age uh, in Scandinavia uh, and of course Scandinavia is a very it's a very large and geographically very diverse uh place so a thousand years ago it inhabited many cultures and life was very different in the old northern outskirts of Norway uh, as opposed to, to the rich fields of southern Denmark, say. Uh, but that being said, I think uh, overall that Scandinavia was much more similar to the rest of Europe than people tend to believe today. Uh, and it was also a lot more connected to the rest of Europe than, than, than we tend to believe today, I, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, and at this time, it was beginning to look more and more like the rest of Europe also. So it was an old world in change. Uh, Christianity was in the process of becoming the dominant religion, uh, as in the rest of, uh, or, of Europe and, and the outskirts of, of Europe in the East. Christian kings were in political control. They had uh, English and German priests in their service, and they, they were spreading the, the gospel and uh, building churches, forming bishoprics. Um, and these same kings, they were concentrating more and more power in their, in their hands. Uh, so uh, it's a very interesting period because around the year 1000, uh, you can slowly start to see the, the structure of Scandinavia that's still visible today with the kingdoms of Denmark and Sweden and Norway forming as political uh, units, so to say. Mm. So, so, so it's, a, it's a period of great change and integration mm. to Europe. Okay, it's, it's fascinating. So why England? Where did that come into the grand plan then? Why was the invasion so strategically important? Well, um, 
the short answer uh, is money. It all had to okay. do with money. So, mm -hmm. so England at this time is also a very interesting place because it was uh, it was actually one of the richest countries in Europe, oh, and wow. it had a very yeah. Yeah, it, uh, England had a very uh, sophisticated monetized economy, uh, which was yeah. based on wool trade across the English Channel, uh, that had made Anglo-Saxon kings uh, immensely rich and helped them mm -hmm. uh, unifying England, uh, creating uh, Anglo-Saxon the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. Uh, so throughout England, there was some so something like 70 royal mints issuing royal coins, millions and millions of small silver silver coins, and these were what the uh, the Scandinavians were after. Mm. So on on the other side of the, of the North Sea, uh, in Scandinavia, you had you had a ruling elite that were of course the descendants of of, of many generations of of what we call Vikings. Mm. Um, a warrior class that based their power on plunder and, and war, basically, and the distribution of, of wealth. Uh, and I think it's very easy to, to mystify and make the Vikings seem much more sophisticated or, or much more exotic, I mean, that, that, than, than what they really were. They were, you can see them sort of like businessmen, uh, and their, their, their power was based on uh, getting uh, their hands on silver, mainly from mm. war abroad, and distributing this silver uh, among their uh, their people. Mm. So, um, in the in in the late nine seventies, uh, the king, the English king called Ethelred, uh, later named Ethelred the Unready, mm. uh, became king of England, uh, and he was just a child, and he was. Uh, a weak king, uh, and England was very far from a unified nation of any sort. It was a very, it was a it was a place with uh, lots of rivalries among the the, the, the aristocrats of, of the land, and and lots of tensions between the north of England and the south of England. Um, so, the combination of a weak king that was very rich and a very resourceful. Viking elite on the other side of the ocean in need of his money was sort of a recipe for disaster, so to say. Mm. So, do you think that that's why? Do you think that's why the Vikings got this kind of reputation amongst, well, from the Anglo perspective at least, of being these kind of violent, bloodthirsty? It wasn't that they were particularly vicious. It's just that they had a king that was inexperienced, unready, and that was kind of there for the taking. What was your thoughts be on that? Well, I think I think um, um, I think they were very rational, and I think okay. they were a lot like other people in Europe at the same time, and they were certainly very violent, and they were certainly very barbaric, seen from from uh, our perspective. But so mm. was the ruling elite uh, all over Europe at this time. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and and it's and it's uh, of course in the English imagination they. Uh, they have become uh, like barbaric foreigners yeah. coming across the yeah. ocean, spreading mm -hmm. spreading terror. But of course, terror was was also one of their main uh, strategies. Of course, okay. yeah. so uh, there's there's like a it's, it's a fascinating and terrible uh, part part of history to to delve into this because mm. th there's such a vicious cycle of violence. So. Mm. 
uh, in the early parts of, of this period that I depict in my book, in the 980s and the 990s, you had you had rather small scale raiding uh, from warlords in Scandinavia coming across the ocean uh, and, and uh, through the means of war, getting silver and bringing it back to, uh, to Scandinavia. And this proved so successful. Uh, and the, the English king, Ethelred, he would pay them tribute money. Uh, he, he would use his system of collecting taxes in England to, to get hold of, of, of really huge amounts of, of, of silver money. And this, of course, would bring uh, the Vikings back again and again. It would give them an incentive to, to continue to wage war. So mm. uh, you can say it started out uh, uh, like England was some sort of a bank that they could rob again and again uh, <laughs> to, to, to keep their people happy and to yeah. uh, uphold their power structure in Scandinavia. And then... Mm as the war uh, became more and more successful and these raids uh, just got them more and more silver and money they become be became mightier and mightier and and their goals and their methods changed and gradually they started seeing england not as a bank to be robbed but as a country to be conquered and uh, mm -hmm. a king uh, ethelred was a king to be displaced and it should be yeah. um, uh, their land so to say yeah that's so I'm always really, yeah it is isn't it? i'm always really interested to hear about this what sources do you use for this period like what how was how was the research process for this book like what did you what was your favorite sources to work with yeah that that's a that, that's a very good question and and it's uh it's it's uh it's been my the hardest book i've i've, I've written uh i'm i'm oh. a i'm a uh, uh i'm used to working with later periods in scandinavian history so yeah. in Scandinavia, this period uh, is, is very hard to work with for Scandinavians. Uh, because basically because uh, no one wrote books in Scandinavia at the time. Uh, mm. No one wrote anything at the time, uh, really. They, uh, so, so our written sources for, uh, for what was going on inside of Scandinavia was written down much later. And, uh, and these are, of course, the, mainly the Icelandic sagas, which are... Yeah uh which are wonderful texts but they are literature uh, yeah. and 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 they are uh, uh it's hard to uh to discern what's what's historical facts and what's in, in invention uh yeah. so uh so actually when i started researching this book and i started working on it it, it was from the start it was intended to be uh, a scandinavian book and then about, about Viking kings in Scandinavia. And then I started delving into, uh, especially the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and other English sources at the same time, because these mm. would shed light of, uh, also into Scandinavia. And then, and then the, the whole idea of the book changed gradually. Mm. So, so of course in England, you had Christian monks uh, writing history down as it happened. Yeah. And uh, so, so you have a much more detailed and much more reliable uh, picture. Am I right in thinking that Scandinavian culture is, because uh, we've had a couple of guests on about this sort of period, is it uh, quite a lot of oral history and like generational stories passed down between families? Is that, where, is that why a lot of things weren't written down because they were just orally passed down from generation to generation? 
Yeah, uh, you have you yeah. have um, uh, so 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 these Viking leaders, they would have poets, skalds, uh, oh. professional uh. poets in their service, and mm. their job was to uh, make their leaders famous by okay. <laughs> composing uh, heroic poetry, praising their deeds. Right. So, uh, so, 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 uh, we have lots and lots of poems that's preserved because these were, these were memorized, and they were composed in a very uh, particular way that made them very difficult to change, okay. uh, because there was so many rules. Uh, you could only comb combine uh, words in a certain way, and the rhythm had to be a certain way. So. So, so because of that, you couldn't really alter them after mm -hmm. they had been, uh, been, been composed and they were memorized, uh, I suppose, like, yeah. uh, like songs or, or, uh, yeah. or pop music of our time. Yeah, and exactly. then many generations after, they were written down in the sagas and, uh, and used in the sagas to, uh, as sources for the, for the stories in the sagas, uh, but also to, uh, uh, as entertainment and as uh, mm. as uh, for the sake of themselves, so so we can sort of dig into the sagas, and we can yeah. find these these remnants of older oral culture uh, yeah. and, and take them out almost like a fossil or something. Yeah, and, uh, it's almost like putting together a big puzzle made out of poems, isn't it? Yeah, together bit by bit, can't you? No, that's so interesting. Thank you. Yeah, really. Is. Fine on that. Yeah. And I think it's so impressive that you've managed to put together like your book covers about what 30 year history and that's using these sources as well to do that is so incredible to kind of piece together. Um, you've touched upon some of the kind of like, you know, the Vikings kept coming back and doing their raids and they really, they clocked in that England was obviously a place that they could really would get, get some sources from. But what was one of the key encounters between these, you know, the Vikings and the Saxons at, at the time? Mm. Well, thank you. Uh, well, there are so many encounters. Um, I wanted to write uh, this book not seen from any particular country's perspective so yeah. to say because i think that's one of the main problems of our way of dealing with this with this period so 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 i picked uh, a handful of key figures uh, on different sides of these conflicts both scandinavians and and um, uh, anglo-saxons to try to give it a perspective from both sides of the of the north sea so to say uh, and uh, and of course these uh, it's it's a complicated uh, narrative because there are so many twists and turns and the people who are enemies at one point would be allies in the next and then they would be enemies again uh, later on and so on so th this is this is some of the reality that i'm trying to uh, to, to to show to the readers but uh, if i had to pick one uh, very important encounter it would be uh, in the year 1013 when the king of the Danes, uh, Swain Forkbeard, uh, namely uh, named Forkbeard because he had a famous moustache that hang, hanged like a <laughs> fork down his face. Uh, real Viking for you there. Uh, he, he crossed the ocean from Denmark with a huge Viking army uh, after having 
plundered England systematically for about 20 years. But this crossing of the ocean was very different because his aim was now not to plunder England or to terrorize England to get silver, but to become the English king. So he, uh, he uh, had made his plans and he had uh, used his connections in Northern England and he landed in Gainsborough and he was greeted by uh, his allies there, Anglo-Saxon allies. And he brought with him his young son, Knut, which was later known as Knut the Great, uh, which was uh, at that time only 14 years old. And Knut was wow. married off to the daughter of a Northern English aristocrat to seal the alliance. Uh, and I think that arrival uh, is very important because it, uh, it proved to be the beginning of a very long and bloody war that was going to last many years uh, before, before the Danes uh, managed to conquer England, but it was a decisive turning point. Mm. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's such a fascinating period of history, and it's a shame that, like, I was just had a bit, when you said about boats then, I just had a flashback to being in school like Liv said and learning doing these do these things these big diagrams of Viking yeah. boats label yes. all the parts of it it's like a staple of English primary school like <laughs> doing the Viking boat drawing but yeah. no thank you for coming on and I'm sure people will enjoy will have enjoyed reading your book so far and will continue to enjoy learning about this period of history so what got you into history now we've talked about the book what got you into not just this period but history in general um well, it's sort of hard to say because uh, I feel like I always found the past very fascinating. So, 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 so probably earlier than I can remember, I think, uh, especially found the distant past very fascinating when everything seemed very different and exotic as a child. Uh, I was very taken by the books of Tolkien as a child. Uh, I think perhaps if I if I need to choose like a certain event that brought me into history perhaps it's when my mother read uh, the hobbit to me at bedside when i when i was a little boy uh, and that's sort of i don't know the images of of uh, medieval people and medieval dressing and uh, and all of that uh, stuck with me i think and yeah. developed into uh, my my interest for for the medieval period and of mm -hmm. course the, the the fairy tales and the fantasy aspect of it has been mm. gradually displaced by an interest in what it was really like, what it was actually like. Um, so so so, but but I'm but I'm still kind of childish, I suppose, in a way, or, or naive, perhaps, in my relationship with history. I I, I still find it. Uh, almost unbelievable to just think about the fact that there's been so many people here before yeah. us everywhere yeah and uh, and they're all gone and they they all lived their lives and worked and talked and had all these strange beliefs and now they're all all gone it's it's sad and it's wonderful I think about that all the time honestly I think when I'm walking through places like London or I'm in a historic kind of building that's been there for thousands of years and I'm like the people that walk through here, I thought I, yeah. it's something you just can't physically comprehend because it doesn't seem real. Yeah, and they were yeah. all, each and one of them were all exactly as real as you are. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look at all the people that you've looked at your book, you know, they, they were real. And it's yeah. not, but you read it and you think, God, this could be, it, 
you can't comprehend it I just think that's no. I think that's the fascinating thing of history isn't it yeah they're more than just poems they're more than just words yeah. on paper yeah they're stories it's a constant mystery <laughs> okay but then talking of like historical myths and stuff we love this question what say, you great could, way to leave yeah I know <laughs> if you could bust any historical myth what would it be you know what? Um, it might seem now that I'm undermining my own book and, uh, and myself. <laughs> so if you, you do it, it's fine. But, You're allowed um, to it. Yeah, it has to do with the Vikings themselves. I actually don't really like the word Viking and the way we okay. use it. And I, uh, if I could wish I could, uh, maybe I would like to just uh, stop using it, uh, perhaps. Um, you see, the origins of the word Viking uh it's very different than we use it today in the period that we think about as the viking age uh the word meant something like a pirate or a bandit uh mm. or a sea raider or something like that and uh, scandinavian warlords uh that would go uh on war expeditions abroad that we will think about as vikings they would bring with them these poets that I described earlier, and these poems, they would uh, uh, compose po poetry about how they fought against the Vikings. Uh, so, for example, one of the key figures in my book is uh, Olaf Haraldsson, uh, who became king of Norway. Uh, and uh, his poets praise him for fighting against Christian Vikings in, in, in France and Muslim Vikings in France. So at, uh, in, in, among his people, the word Viking was simply, simply meant enemy, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's interesting. So it wasn't before the, the 19th century, actually, that the meaning of the word became, came to mean a Scandinavian. Mm. Uh, and so, so national romantic Scandinavian intellectuals that were looking to create a Scandinavian identity, they enthusiastically started using the word Viking to mean any Scandinavian living in the distant past or, 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 or in, the, in the 9th to 11th century. And, uh, and this way they created uh, a brand that has been enormously, enormously successful, of course, uh, in yeah. the branding of Scandinavia as this very exotic and, and, and special place. Uh, exotic barbarians from the north who are, of course, the perfect heroes in, in, in some stories and the perfect villains of other stories. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've come to think that, uh, that, that the word perhaps uh, creates as much um, confusion and uh, misconceptions uh, as it does clarity about the past. So, so if you if you really want to understand the period, th this period, uh, I, I think uh, very many don't many many people don't understand that Scandinavia how similar Scandinavia was to the rest of the world, and that doesn't mean that these uh, warlords that went on plundering expeditions weren't very brutal and very barbaric seen seen from her perspective, but 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 uh, they behaved in almost exact the same way as kings and aristocrats elsewhere in Europe as well. Mm. So, 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 yeah. so uh, 
Uh, I think uh, the word Viking is so imprinted in our imagination and our language yeah. now that it's impossible yeah. to change. But uh, but it's something that should people should be reminded of. Uh, yeah, definitely having an awareness of its meaning, if anything, yeah. like and the contextualize like how you've just described it. I think that's the important thing here. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, because the Vikings are so heavily mythologized. I was looking forward to your answer to that question because I, yeah, they, they are just, it's crazy looking back on it and all of the impressions we have of it now. I swear yeah. most people like our age just have an impression of the Vikings based off of the TV show. So what has been, I'm sure there's been many, but what has been a kind of career highlight so far? Is there anything that sticks out that's been really, that you're really proud of or something that you've been really happy to do so far? Uh, yeah, uh, I thought about that for a while to, p to <laughs> pick one one thing. Um, back in 2008, uh, there was this Norwegian publishing house that held a competition among academic historians. And they were looking for historians who, who could write readable books for the general public uh, about their research. Mm -hmm. uh, which Which is something that Norwegian historians are not very... Uh, used to doing. Uh, and at that time I was working at the university uh, in Oslo and I'd been pondering for a while uh, to write a biography about uh, a completely unknown but to me very fascinating Norwegian aristocrat uh, that lived uh, in the 13th century. And uh, my best moment in my career was, I can say now, uh, was when I got a call telling me I'd won this competition because that... Oh, nice. Uh, that uh, resulted in my book being published uh, and it became a big hit in Norway and made my name in Norway and, and if it hadn't oh. been for that uh, I would have written my other books either so I think that's the, the most important oh, thing that's oh, amazing mm. yeah, yeah, so what, what an opportunity yeah yeah, uh, yeah well done on all your success so far Thank yeah you. that's Thank a lovely you. what a nice little springboard moment to your whole career yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. okay right if you're ready, we'll dive into our fun round where sure. we ask each of our guests, obviously, a question and you just give your first immediate answer to. Um, should we go in? Are you ready? Sure. Brilliant. OK, so who is your favourite figure in all of history? I think that would have to be Queen Margaret I Ooh, okay. uh, of Denmark. Yeah. Uh, she, she was a Danish princess that was married off to the king of norway uh, as a child in the 14th century and mm. she uh, she's just a very fascinating person uh, an important historical person also she outlived her husband in norway and she used her position to gain control over denmark as well and then to subjugate sweden uh, so so she united all of scandinavia in a political union called the kalmar union uh, which had certain events turn out differently could very easily have grown into a united scandinavian national state wow. that, that would be around today so 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 she must have been a very uh, a very smart woman and and uh, had some quite extraordinary political skills and just being very very fascinating to meet her um, one of her dresses is actually preserved and it shows that she was a very tiny person yet uh, i think she might have been in her in her time the most powerful person ever to live in medieval Scandinavia. So wow. I think she's That's my favorite. I love that. Yeah, I've looked at oh. her before. Very interesting history. Mm. Okay, so who's your least favorite figure in all of history? 
You know what? I I I I I thought about that for for, for a little <laughs> while, and I tried to come up with someone original. Uh, okay. And uh, but but you know what? I just can't get past the most obvious of them all. It's Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's you know what? Everyone has the same problem because you think they're so obvious. Then we get some really unique ones, but it is like <laughs> they are bloody awful. You can't yeah. do it. You just can't. <laughs> just can't be beaten. Yeah. No, they really can't. No. Okay, right, so a bit more positive then. If you were going to go on a road trip, mm-hmm. which three people from history would you want in your car? Well, the first one I would bring would be Cleopatra. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, Queen of Egypt, uh, lover of Caesar and Mark Antony. Uh, and the second I would bring would be Emma of Normandy, which is one of the <laughs> figures I, I, I write about in my book, uh, who is somewhat similar to Cleopatra in a way she was uh, she was queen of England uh, of Anglo-Saxon England when the Vikings uh, in my book uh, attacked uh, she was the wife of Ethelred the unready the Anglo-Saxon king and then after Ethelred had died she became the wife of his mortal enemy Knut the Great oh. uh, so I think these two women would uh, be extraordinary witnesses of their times and they would have very much to talk about. Completely. Uh, they would, of course, also be very high maintenance women to bring a road uh, <laughs> on a road trip. Uh, you need a big arrogant. car boot. Yeah. <laughs> You'd need a big car boot. Yes, they, these would be <laughs> members of the super elite of the old world, and they would be used to being surrounded by servants and slaves and so on. So. I would need someone to counterbalance them and mm-hmm. to plan all the practicalities of the trips. And yeah. uh, who better than, than the English polar explorer and famous leader of men, Sir Ernest Shackleton? Oh, wow. Okay. That, that would be my trio. Would yeah, be... that's great. <laughs> I love that car. the idea of Shackleton like, giving Cleopatra directions <laughs> and her being like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Telling her exactly. what to do. <laughs> yeah I like it oh, I like the amount of strong women that there's been a theme of like badass women that's been in this interview so it's good yeah good to hear good. okay so final question then if you could go back in time for one day where and when would you go to well I would not go to the Viking Age and I would uh, not enough. go to yep. ancient Rome either <laughs> I would actually go back and spend one day with the last living Neanderthal wherever wow. he or she lived nice that okay, would be good. that would be an amazing day yeah yeah that, i think it's quite a, we've not yeah, had that one before no that unique answer but definitely kind of popular to go back as far so far that we don't really have as much vision yeah and i, and I uh, don't know when go, or yeah. where i would i would be of course yeah, yeah that's true it's very ambiguous <laughs> exactly. actually mm. that was a great answer i love it i love it well, thank you so much for talking to us today. This has been great fun, and I'm sure our listeners are going to very much enjoy hearing about Scandinavian life. <laughs> thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed that episode with Paul's guy looking at his book, Wolf Age. Uh, we'll have another episode with you again next week. In the meantime, don't forget to like, share, and tweet everything with us on social media. And I've been Olivia Smith. And I've been Phoebe Storrow, and this is Carlton Malarkey. I know. Thank you.